Welcome to tape number six of Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L 3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. And now to our reading of Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele, which we pray you find to be a great blessing and which we hope draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing our reading of Revelation chapter 11, verses 4 through 6. But the question is of great importance, and to themselves in particular, of absorbing interest. How shall these witnesses be identified among mankind? For however few, humble, despised, and persecuted, even unto death, strange as it may seem, there are not wanting many to put forth a claim to be identified with them. Assuming that these mystic witnesses are individual persons, the Papists say they are Enoch and Elijah hereafter to appear on earth. By Protestants, John Huss and Jerome, Luther and Calvin have been also selected. Others suppose the Old Testament and New Testaments with many other vague and groundless conjectures. The witnesses die, but the two prophets named were translated that they should not see death, and the thought is preposterous that they should be brought again from their glorious state of immortality and subjected to an ignominious death. John Huss and Jerome of Prague did not prophesy 1260 years, nor have we the shadow of a ground to believe that any of the human race shall ever prolong their days on earth to the age of Methuselah. The two testaments cannot die, for the word of God liveth and abideth forever. 1 Peter 1.23 But it would seem tedious and unprofitable to confute the various chimeras which on this question have been entertained in the minds equally of the learned and, un- and illiterate. The like fanciful and diversified opinions have been and still are prevalent in relation to what constitutes the Antichrist, 1 John 2.22. Now, it is evident, even on a cursory perusal of the Apocalypse, that the witnesses and their opponents are the principal parties symbolized in the whole series of the seals, trumpets, and vials. How then can anyone attain to a rational understanding of the manifold details who remain willingly ignorant of the principal characters in this grandest of all tragic dramas presented to man's view on the stage of Jehovah's moral empire to be contemplated for the whole period of 1260 years? The prevailing ignorance, bewilderment, and error in the minds of most spectators of these moving scenes we are warranted to expect. Daniel 12, verse 10. For the present, we define the witnesses and Antichrist concisely thus. The witnesses are a competent number of Christians who, 
for 1260 years insist upon the application of God's word to church and state and who testify against all communities who rebel against the Lord Christ. Such communities in visible organization constitute the Antichrist as will more fully appear in the 13th and 17th chapter where the two prominent parties are more formally presented. Let us never lose sight of the fact that these witnesses cease not to prophesy. To apply the scriptures, especially the prophetical parts of them, during the whole period of 1260 years, that is, while they live, authentic history supplies abundant evidence that such has been their special work all along since the rise of the anti-Christian enemy. That enemy is but obscurely mentioned, not described in the little book the contents of which we have, as already seen in this chapter, verses 1 to 13. The character and achievements of the witnesses may be found in the familiar histories of the Chaldees and Lollards of Britain, the Waldenses of Piedmont, the Bohemian Brethren, together with the more recent and successful reformers on the continent of Europe and in the British Isles. It is unnecessary to mention the names of those men of renown, Zwingli, Luther, Calvin, Knox, Henderson, men mighty in word and in deeds, whose influence on the great family of nations their very enemies have reluctantly attested. The testimony of an enemy has ever been deemly, excuse me, deemed weighty. The following is appropriate and decisive from the polished pen of the historian of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. The visible, quote, the visible assemblies of the Paulicans or Albigeos a-L-B-I-G-E-O-I-S were extirpated by fire and sword and the bleeding remnant escaped by flight, concealment, or Catholic conformity. But the invisible spirit which they had kindled still lived and breathed in the Western world. In the state, in the church, and even in the cloister, a latent succession was preserved of the disciples of St. Paul who protested against the tyranny of Rome embraced the Bible as the rule of faith and purified their creed from all the visions of the Gnostic theology. The struggles of Whitcliffe in England and of Huss in Bohemia were premature and ineffectual, but the names of Zwingli, Luther, and Calvin are pronounced with gratitude as the deliverers of nations. Footnote. Gibbon has unconsciously written a commentary on prophecy, an involuntary witness like Josephus. Back to the text. Ever since the time of those eminent witnesses, the same testimony has been maintained. It is not yet finished, the witnesses are yet alive, and the term of 1260 years is not expired. Verses 7 to 10. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, and shall overcome them, and kill them and their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry, and shall send gifts one to another, because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. In these verses we have described the death of the witnesses as also the agent mentioned by whom the fatal stroke is given. 
as future occurrence occasion will occur for identifying this bloody tyrant, ascertaining with precision his diabolical origin, here only hinted his crimes and his awful doom, it is premature to amplify in this place. If the witnesses cannot be identified, neither can the time of their death be ascertained. We find indeed among expositors as many vague notions relative to the time and the nature of their death as in relation to their identity. These notions are unworthy of notice, for however they might amuse, they cannot edify. Four questions are suggested by these verses. By whom, in what manner, when, and where are the witnesses slain? The first question is explicitly answered in the sacred text. The beast of hellish origin kills them. But it will afterward appear that the beast is instigated to this relentless cruelty by another agent of the devil. Again, as to the kind of death, we may in good measure learn this from the kind of life. Now it is obvious that to give testimony or prophesy during the allotted time constitutes their life. They live that they may prophesy. Hence, it is usual to speak of silencing as equivalent to slaying these witnesses. But this is not strictly correct. Why? Because they have been hitherto killed all the day long. Psalm 44, verse 22, and Romans 8:36. Doubtless defection and apostasy do always accompany persecution, and thus the testimony of such is silenced. But the enemy in this case is drunken with the blood of these witnesses, and this phrase must be understood literally. Moreover, the enemy gets blood to drink because of shedding blood. Chapter 14, verse 6, and chapter 17, verse 6. The death of the witnesses is therefore a literal death. Of course, it will also be moral. They will cease to prophesy. Some have supposed the three years or days and a half during which the witnesses die lie dead are the same as the 1260 days or years because of these three and a half days be considered as prophetical and reduced to literal days they will amount exactly to 1260 such an interpretation however is preposterous simply because according to this hypothesis they never lived at all the absurdity is evident having ascertained the nature of the, of the death to which the witnesses are appointed by the Lord of life we now inquire as to the time of this mournful event. The text informs us that their death is connected with the finishing of their testimony. However the original may be translated, when they shall have finished, when they sh shall be finishing, or about to finish, affects not the question as to time. While they live, their work is to prophesy, and their testimony is not completed. Like their master, to whose example they are conformed, their life and testimony are finished together. These facts, briefly and obscurely hinted here, will be more satisfactorily presented in the next, but especially in the 20th chapter, verses 1 to 4. But inasmuch as many, if not most interpreters, have expressed the opinion that the witnesses are already slain, the following arguments in the negative are submitted to the reader. The 1260 years are not yet, yet, not yet terminated, during which the whole of which time the witnesses are to prophesy. Verse 3. Their testimony is yet continued and sensibly felt by the wicked. They still more or less torment them that dwell on the earth. Verse 10. Beyond the usual reproach attached to their names and their work, there has been no general reviling and deriding of them throughout Christendom. 
to render their memory infamous. Verse 9. No opprobrious epithet such as these deceivers said while they were yet alive. Matthew 27, verse 63. That so they might be conformed to their Lord in his death. Nor, lastly, have they that dwell upon the earth exalted as yet over these hated individuals as no longer hurtful to kings and provinces, although there have been often partial but premature rejoicings by a part of the enemy. But although from time to time some of them have fallen to try them and to purge and to make them white as predicted, Daniel 11, verse 35, yet the time of making merry, sending gifts, is not yet come. While we believe on the grounds deduced, and much more might have been cited from the context, that the death of the witnesses is to be understood literally, we do not suppose that every individual will be personally put to death. No, but as in the time of Elijah's banishment, or of the, our Savior's lying in the grave, there will be no public body or individual standard-bearer to bear testimony against the enemies of Jesus Christ, or boldly to assert and press his royal claims upon church and state. In prospect of this dark time, darker than the darkest ages, we may ask with Joshua, What, what wilt thou do unto thy great name? But though the witnesses die, the faithful witness lives. Chapter 1, verse 18. The place where the witnesses lie dead is pointed out by three places well known in sacred history, Egypt, Sodom, and Jerusalem. But these are to be understood mystically. The place resembles Egypt for idolatry and cruelty to the people of God. It is like Sodom for literal and spiritual pollution, and Jerusalem where our Lord was crucified afresh and put to open shame in the persons of his slain witnesses. It follows, of course, that place to be utterly destroyed. Excuse me. It follows, of course, that that place is to be utterly destroyed having committed the crimes and contracted the guilt of all those unpardonable criminals. Psalm 74, verse 13 and 14, Ezekiel 31, 18, Isaiah 13, 19, Luke 21, 20. For similar reasons, Babylon is afterwards mentioned repeatedly as the place of this tragic event, this unpardonable crime, the slaying of the witnesses. Chapter 17, verse 24. It is to be specially noted here that in ascertaining the place of the death of these distinguished servants of Christ, our attention is directed by the Holy Spirit to a street of the city. At present, it is assumed that streets of the city and horns of the beast substantially harmonize the symbols. Now look over the streets of the great city. Contemplate the horns of the beast. Ascertain which is most guilty of persecution. In estimating the relative degree of guilt, the degree of heavenly light against which the criminal has rebelled is to be taken into the account. John 15.22, Matthew 11.24 In view of these scriptural principles and the actual conditions of Christendom as portrayed in authentic history, would the conjecture seem presumptuous? Should we venture to designate Great Britain? There for centuries the witnesses have been most numerous, active, and pointed in testifying against encroachment of the crown rights of Messiah. There also lordly prelates, in close alliance with a blasphemous horn of the beast, have often vied with the sworn vassals of the man of sin in murdering the saints of God. Therefore it is no great thing if throwing off the mask of Protestantism, English prelacy combined with Romish Jesuits and Jesuits should make common cause with undisguised infidelity in slaying the witnesses against their heaven-daring 
rebellion. The signs of the present time, 1870, render our conjecture not improbable. We give it only as a conjecture, for in reference to events yet future, as we believe that the death of the witnesses to be, we may not presume to prophesy. Three days and a half is the limited period of their degradation, and this is three natural years and a half, for the word days must be taken in the same sense as in verse 3. Otherwise, we fall into an inextricable labyrinth of endless confusion, from all which it appears that the triumphing of the wicked is short. If while the wicked is in power and we wait upon God, we are called to join trembling with our mirth. The pleasing prospect of the speedy and joyful resurrection of these slain may inspire us with a lively hope and warrant us to join mirth with our trembling. Verses 11 and 12. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven, saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. In these two verses, as in the preceding, the thoughtful reader will discern a beautiful allusion in the history of these witnesses to the death and life of our blessed Master. For if they have been planted together in the likeness of his death, they shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Yes, they have communion with him in death and life, in grace and glory. Nothing can separate them from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus their Lord. The spirit of life from God entered into them. That is, God will speedily raise up successors who, maintaining the very same principles, will be gloriously successful in putting down all rule and authority and power that had been in hostility to their Lord. 1 Corinthians 15:24 and 25. See also Ezekiel 37, verses 11 to 14. This is the first resurrection to be explained by the inspired penman more fully hereafter, chapter 20, verse 5. As Saul feared David and Herod John Baptist, because they were just men and holy, so were the wicked afraid when these witnesses arose, and like Shimei, they justly dread the due reward of their deeds. At the time referred to, the haters of the Lord will feign submission the great voice from heaven inviting the witnesses to ascend and their actual ascent is another allusion to Christ's exaltation. As when he was taken up, a cloud received him, so here they ascended up to heaven in a cloud. It has often been the cry of the anti-Christian multitude, the voice of the people is the voice of God. This cry has been iterated and reiterated in centuries past like that of the Ephesian worshippers of Diana, that thereby the testimony of the witnesses might be counteracted and silenced. It has been only too often successful. But where did flattering demagogues and haughty despots find the sentiment? They found it engraved on the moral constitution manned by our beneficent creator. They found it also transcribed on the pages of objective revelation, the Bible. But like other moral and scriptural principles, it has been perverted and misapplied by the perverse ingenuity of wicked men. This voice from heaven is indeed the people's voice, and it is legitimate as coming from the people because it is first the voice of God. The heaven here mentioned is the seat of civil power, the ordinance of man, 1 Peter 2:13. 
In the times here contemplated, millennial times, the rights of men will be respected, predicated upon the rights of God and flowing from them as inseparable. In settling the point of title to civil sovereignty or the eligibility of any candidate for civil office, the principle enunciated by Hushe the Archite will be found to be alone reliable, whom the Lord and this people choose. 2 Samuel 16, verse 18. Only let the Lord have the first choice of candidates for office in both church and state, and society will be prosperous and happy. Acts 1, 23 and 24 and 6, verse 5. The great voice of the 12th verse comes from heaven as the great voices of the 15th verse announcing the millennium. Verse 13. And the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell, and in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted, and gave glory to the God of heaven. The same hour that the witnesses marked by their resurrection contemporaneously with that joyful event is a great earthquake, a revolution. Chapter 6, verse 12. The tenth part of the city fell, the city Sodom. Tenth part of the city, a street equivalent to Horn, some one of the ten kingdoms will secede from the anti-Christian confederacy or imperial dominion and the remnant. The other nine, dreading the mediator's vengeance, will reluctantly but speedily submit. See chapter 6, 16, and 17. In the earthquake were slain of men, names, titles, 7,000. By names of men to be slain, that is, abolished and reorganized society, we are, un- we are to understand those names of blasphemy mentioned, chapter 13, 1, hereafter to be explained. We have now taken a very cursory view of the contents of the little open book. Its place is between the termination of the fourth and the sounding of the seventh trumpet. In other words, it gives an outline of the contest between the witnesses of an Antichrist during the 1260 years, events running parallel in time, at least in part, with the first two woe trumpets, for it obviously anticipates also the effects of the third and last woe. This may be as suitable a place as any other before proceeding to a consideration of the seventh trumpet to direct attention to the method which infinite wisdom has chosen by which to reveal to mankind the purposes of God and property who alone knows the end from the beginning, who from ancient times has declared the things that are not yet done has told us plainly, I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry or hand of the prophets. Hosea 12, verse 10. Now, since God has multiplied visions, we ought not to think it strange if the same important events in providence be predicted by several or by many of the prophets, or that one and the same important event be foretold at sundry times and in diverse manners by the same prophet. How often and how, by how many prophets was the dispersion of the Jews foretold? The downfall of ancient cities, Babylon, Nineveh, Tyre. Need we refer to the language of our Lord addressed to his disciples on the way to Emmaus? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Luke 24, verse 27. We may be sure that the things concerning Christ and the interest of his kingdom in this world are the theme of inspired prophets in the New Testament as well as the Old. Agreeably to these views, we find Nebuchadnezzar's dream and Daniel's vision relate to the same objects and events. 
What was more obscurely revealed in the monarch's dream is rendered more intelligible by various symbols in Daniel's first vision, Daniel 2, verses 36 to 45, and Daniel 7, 17 to verse 27. But in the, tech, in the next, the eighth chapter, Daniel is favored with still clearer information relative to what he had already seen in the vision. And in the 11th chapter, his attention is called to the most obscure but most interesting parts of his former visions. And after all, the vision is sealed so that he sees not the end of these things. Chapter 12, verses 8 and 9. I heard, but I understood not. 1 Peter 1, verses 10 and 11. In this book, styled Apocalypse or Revelation, we are told in the first verse that the Lord Christ signified made known by signs to his servant John the things that were to come to pass. We have thus far seen that the customary method has been pursued in using signs, symbols, or emblems. Henceforth we will find multiplied visions employed more clearly to illustrate events which have already passed under review, but of which we could see little more than a profile, men as trees walking. Uh, verses 14 and 15. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The third woe cometh quickly. The time elapsing since the end of the second is not to be so long as the, that intervening period between the first two woes. The first woe is thought to have begun around the year 612 and continuing by the Saracenic conquest about 150 years to have terminated in 762. The second woe trumpet, it is alleged, sounded around about 1281 and continuing for 391 years. The period of the ravages by the Euphradian horsemen ended about 1672. The destructive influence, however, of these two judgments may be considered as reaching to the time of the third woe, the one which is to demolish the whole anti-Christian fabric. Many eminent expositors, footnote by the writer, it has been our lot to hear the voice of the third woe, favor. In this I entirely agree with that expositor. McLeod, the blinding influence of earth's politics upon the minds of pious men has often occasioned the hearts of their brethren to sigh for their inconsistency. End quote. Back to the text. Many eminent expositors in the early part of the present century, while the first Napoleon war excuse me, while the first Napoleon was waging successful war with other powers of Europe, expressed their belief with much confidence that the seventh angel had begun to sound. They were evidently mistaken. Christendom will not fail to hear the voice of the third woe. It may be so that an individual may not be conscious of having an interest inconsistent with fidelity to the scriptures, while political bias may in fact so influence sentiments as to render conviction less dependent upon evidence than upon his wishes. And we doubt not that misapprehensions and misinterpretations of the other scriptures are to be attributed to this cause, insensibly influencing the minds and hearts of learned and godly men as well as in their expositions of the apocalypse. Indeed, the misapplying of God's word, precept and prophecy, to political and ecclesiastical organizations 
has been the principal means of combining and continuing the anti-Christian apostasy. Thus, it is precisely that the great adversary has been successful as an angel of light. The little book has been shown to contain such extensive and important events as to justify the solemnity accompanying its delivery to the apostle. He now resumes the subject which had been interrupted at the close of the ninth chapter. The great voices in heaven represent the expressions of joy by the saints upon hearing the voice of the last of the trumpets as assuring them of the happy change in the moral condition of the world which they had been warranted to expect by God's servants, the prophets, from the days of old. Chapter 10, verse 7. The great, the universal change consists in this. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. The English supplement, the kingdoms, is justified and required equally by the sense and the laws of syntax. And he is a deceiver if a scholar, if a scholar who insists upon any other to supply the ellipsis. Indeed, the omission of similar supplements has occasioned needless obscurity to the unlearned in other parts of this book. See chapters 19:10 and 22, verse 9. The greatest of all revolutions consists in restoring church and state to their scriptural foundation, transferring both from allegiance to the God of this world, Matthew 4, 8, Luke 4, 5, and 6, to their rightful owner, the Lord and his anointed, Psalm 2, and verse 2 and 8. When this desirable epoch arrives, for which the persecuted witnesses have long and fervently prayed, chapter 6, verse 10, gospel ministers and Christian magistrates will seek to do the will and aim at the glory of God. It is painful and pitiful to hear learned and pious men often pray that the kingdoms of this world may soon become the kingdoms of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is to ask amiss, to miss the promise, for no such promise is on, is on record. The groundless conception confounds the revealed distinctions in the Godhead, the Father with the Mediator, and it would subvert Jehovah's moral empire, annihilating the internal principle of representative identification. But those good men mean not so, neither to do their hearts think so. Excuse me. But those good men mean not so, neither do their hearts think so. They ought, however, to be more careful and diligent in searching the scriptures. If the scriptural significance of this joyful announcement in heaven were better understood by gospel ministers generally, a chief barrier would be removed, which now obstructs the advent of the millennium. Would they but cease, their hearers might more readily cease to wonder after the beast, but we may not anticipate. He, Christ, shall reign forever and ever, when the seventh trumpet, the third woe, shall have accomplished its object in the utter destruction of the immoral power and the 1260 years shall have come to an end, no other successful combination shall ever again be permitted to assail and harass the city of the Lord. Of his government there shall be no end. Daniel 7.27 All dominion shall serve and obey him. The final enterprise of Gog and Magog shall not succeed. Chapters 20, verses 7 to 9 This ends side 1. Please turn the tape over and continue listening on side 2. Verses 16 to 18. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and what's 
and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power, and hast reigned. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants the prophets, and to the saints, and to them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. These verses give us a glimpse of the times following the last woe till the end of the world. The elders, the representatives, not of the ministry as prelates dream, but of the collective body of God's people, now that they are emancipated from a longer and more cruel bondage than that of their fathers in a literal Egypt, give thanks to God for the display of his great power in their deliverance. Many times had he made bare his holy arm in past ages on behalf of his people, but this is in their eyes the most signal display of his power. Thou hast taken to thee thy great power. He now exercises his power over the nations, which was his before. Their anger in the time of their rebellion is now repressed. Messiah's wrath is come, heavier wrath than that which fell upon Rome pagan. Chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. Then follows an intimation of the final judgment and suitable rewards. Our curiosity is excited here, but not gratified. But while left in suspense, we may, with Daniel and the Virgin Mary, keep these things in our heart. Daniel 7:28 and Luke 2:19. Farther light will be given. Chapter 20, verses 11 to 13. Verse 19. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. The inspired books of the Bible were divided into chapters, verses, and other parts for the convenience of reference. But those who performed this useful service were imperfect like ourselves, and therefore we are at liberty to differ from them in our arrangement. Now it seems evident that the 18th verse closes this chapter with a concise account of the endings of the last woe. But the last woe reaches to the final consummation of all things, as we have already seen. It follows that the 19th verse must introduce a new subject. Similar mistakes may be seen in numerous instances elsewhere in our Bibles. But although a new vision is presented in the 12th chapter, the two principal parties delineated in the 11th engaged the apostles' attention. And as preparatory to future scenes, the temple of God was opened in heaven. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God hath shined. Before the following scene of warfare, John is favored with a view of the Ark of the Testament, a symbol of the covenant of grace which shall continue to be administered in the worst of times in the opposition to which, in its external dispensation, is emblematically set forth by lightnings, as well as the tokens of Jehovah's presence and avenging judgments. For these awful symbols, taken from fearful convulsions in nature, are usually indicative of the tremendous judgments of God. Chapter 12 And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of st- twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth, in pain to be delivered. The Apocalypse, besides the three parts into which it is divided by its divine author, author noticed in chapter 1, verse 19, is also susceptible of division into two parts. 
with the 11th chapter, excuse me, with the 11th chapter terminates the abridged prospective history of the church and of the world, emblematically represented under the seals and trumpets. The seventh seal, when opened, disclosed all the contents of the sealed book and also introduced the seven trumpets. But we have followed the series of the trumpets, trumpets in order to the end of the world, interrupted only by the isolated history of the little book, which treating of events which were matters of history under the first two woe trumpets could not be sealed. Now at the twelfth chapter, without regard to the seventh or any other of the trumpets in particular, we are furnished with a second and enlarged edition, as it were, of the most important parts of the first edition. We have observed before that this is the manner of the prophets on a large scale, especially in predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. So it is with John and Paul. What the latter only hints at when writing to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 3, he enlarges upon in addressing the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 to 12. The theme is the same as treated by these two apostles, and this coincidence will in due time be more manifest. Next to Christ personal, the prophets have been interested in the destiny of Christ mystical. Three different views of this chapter, 12th chapter have been taken, in, taken by the more sober and learned expositors. One considers it as referring to the Roman Empire and its heathen state prior to the time of Constantine. Another understands the first part of this chapter, verses 1 to 6, as relating to Rome pagan and the rest of the chapter to anti-Christian Rome. A third conceives that the whole of it applies to apostate imperial Rome only. The last is doubtless the correct view, as the sealed book and the little open book must be supposed to contain all the prophetical part of the Apocalypse, and as the whole of the little book is comprised in the 11th chapter, verses 1 to 13, this 12th chapter must belong to the sealed book. Being a continuance of the history under the seventh seal, although it may agree in time with some of the trumpets, it cannot go back to a period prior to the seventh seal. But under the sixth seal, paganism was abolished in the Roman Empire. Therefore, this chapter refers to the anti-Christian empire. Moreover, as the little book was introductory to the seventh trumpet, designating the object of the third woe, so this chapter and the next two are wholly occupied in describing the object of the vials, chapter 16. We ought to bear in mind continually that the seals, trumpets, and vials are introduced as symbols to delineate one character, the impenitent enemy of God and of his saints. But this enemy beguiles through his subtlety, changing his aspects and instruments, and more successfully to assail the city of the Lord, it is therefore the design of the Holy Spirit in these chap three chapters to present the foe in his most prominent features that the two witnesses may be able to identify the enemy, be apprised of their danger, and intelligently choose their commander, the captain of salvation. There appeared a great wonder in heaven. The word wonder in this verse and also in verse 3 simply means a sign or symbol and the whole structure of the book requires that it be so translated. Woman is here the true church of God. Here most expositors fail to explain the symbol heaven. Others say heaven symbolizes the church. Then we have two churches, a church within a church. This is unquestionably the only correct view of the matter. 
During most, if not the whole period of the 1260 years, the witnesses are so blended with or overshadowed by the church Catholic or general that few are able and fewer still disposed to distinguish the one from the other. All through the Bible, the church is spoken of as a female. She is the daughter of Zion, the bride, the lamb's wife. Any body politic is spoken of in the sacred writings in the same style. The daughter of Babylon, of Tyre, or even of Egypt. These are familiar figures. The woman is clothed with the sun. She has put on the Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 13, verse 14. He is the Lord her righteousness, Jeremiah 23, verse 6. The moon under her feet may represent the beggarly elements of the Mosaic ritual, sublunary things, or the ordinances which derive all their light from the sun of righteousness. The twelve stars are the doctrine of the apostles, or rather the apostles' legitimate successors. Their legitimately, excuse me, their legitimacy tested by their doctrine and order in opposition to the imaginary historical line of papist and prelatic succession. A faithful gospel ministry are ever her stars and her crown. Chapter 120. The true apostolic church, thus scripturally constituted, chapter 11, verse 1, becomes the joyful mother of a holy seed. Psalm 113, verse 9, Galatians 4, 26, and 27, verses 3 to 6. And there appeared another wonder in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour the, her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. The next sign in heaven exciting the apostles' admiration was a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. The dragon is fully described, verse 9, leaving no place or even pretense for conjecture. He is known from the day that he beguiled Eve in the Garden of Eden. That old serpent still intrudes among the saints in the Garden of the Lord. Job 1.6, John 6.70, and John 13, verse 27. As the devil possessed the servant to deceive the mother of mankind, so with the same mal malevolent design... He possessed himself of the whole political and ecclesiastical power of the Roman Empire, thereby to deceive and to destroy the seed of the woman, all true believers. His color is red, denoting his character as cruel and bloodthirsty. Sir Isaac Newton considers the dragon as symbolical of the Greek Christian Empire of Constantinople. Scott thinks this symbol represents the pagan Roman Empire, while others suppose the British Empire to answer the symbol because of the scarlet costume of her officers and soldiers. Thus, inspired symbols may mean anything suggested to the imaginations of men, not by the text or context, but by their respective and conflicting political prejudices. Surely, if the red colors signify anything besides cruelty, it may be discerned with equal clearness in the scarlet cloaks of Pope and Cardinals, 
as heaven is to be taken in an ecclesiastical sense, so are the stars, chapter 1, verse 20, the angels of the churches, ministers of the gospel. As the Sar- Saracenic locust and the Euphradian horses had stings and hurtful power in their tails, chapter 9, verses 10 and 19, so it is with this dragon. The destructive influence of Mohammedan delusion and papal idolatry operated as a fatal poison in the souls of men. The judgment of the past woes left many still in a state of impenitence, chapter 9, 20, and 21. The leaders of this people caused them to err by inculcating submission to existing corrupt civil power. powers. The little horn of Daniel, as first rendered visible in the person of the brutal Focast, P-H-O-C-A-S, began to be addressed in language of most fulsome and degrading flattery, which seems to be copied till the present time, that we may see how mercenary and aspiring ecclesiastics paid court to civil despots from the commencement of the famous 1260 years, let the following instance serve for a sample. Addressing, addressing the monster focus, Pope Gregory, as the mouth of the clergy and laity, uses this language. Footnote. The terms clergy and laity are of papal origin, and the unlearned Christian should know that they are contrary to the mind of the Holy Spirit. First period, uh, First Peter 5.3. The body of the people are God's heritage. Back to the text. Addressing the monster focus, Pope Gregory, as the mouth of the clergy and laity, uses this language. We rejoice that the benignity of your piety has reached the pinnacle of imperial power. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Now let us hear the character of focus from the pen of an infidel. Quote, Ignorant of letters, of laws, and even of arms, he indulged in the supreme rank a more ample privilege of lust and drunkenness. The punishment of the victims of his tyranny was embittered by the refinements of cruelty. Their eyes were pierced, their tongues were torn from their root, their hands and feet were amputated, some expired under the lash, others in the flames, others again were transfixed with arrows, and a simple speedy death was mercy which they could rarely obtain. End quote. From Gibbon's uh, Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. Thus the dragon's power was in his mouth, issuing bloody edicts to slay the innocent, while his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. They prostrated their ministry to sustain sustain the policy of the beast. The ancient and the honorable, he is the head, and the prophet that teacheth lies, he is the tail. Isaiah 9.15 Thus it is that pastors, fond of show and ambitious of worldly distinction, attach themselves to the train of earthly thrones and dignitaries and so constitute and perpetuate the anti-Christian confederacy against the woman, the true church. During the first 600 years of the Christian era, the woman had been travailing to bring forth a holy progeny. At this time, the dragon's eyes are privily set against the poor. Psalm 10, verse 8. The allusion is here to the cruel edict of Pharaoh. Exodus 1:16 and Acts 8, verse 19. The great city where the witnesses are slain is spiritually called Egypt. Chapter 11, verse 8. By a like form of speech, Pharaoh is called the great dragon, Ezekiel 29, verse 3, and Isaiah 51, verse 9. It should be noted that the Roman Empire, the beast, and all its heads and horns is actuated by the devil, 
before as well as after its dismemberment from the time of Romulus, its founder, till its overthrow by the third woe, at the time referred to in the text when the empire has assumed the livery of heaven professedly in the interest of Christ, then it is that the devil bestirs himself. Like his prototype, he dreads the growth and power of the woman's offspring. Under pagan Rome's persecutions, the more God's people were afflicted, the more they multiplied and grew. Now the adversary shapes his policy accordingly. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. His avowed object is to devour the child as soon as it is born, by persecution to prevent ministers from laboring to convert sinners to God, and to destroy all who, as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word. The woman had still strength to bring forth. She brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. With united voice, papists and prelates declare, This child can be no other than Constantine, the first Christian empire. The very fact that this interpretation comes from such a source may well suggest suspicion as to its correctness. Two considerations demonstrate the error of this prelatic interpretation besides the fact that it is prelatic. Constantine had gone the way of all the earth some hundreds of years before the birth of this child. And again, the Eternal Father never made the promise to Constantine or any other earthly monarch to which the Apostle John here refers. Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9. This promise is obviously made to the Lord Christ, but it is objected by those learned expositors, much like the Pharisees. John 7:52. Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. So reason these men. They haughtily and confidently object thus, Christ is the son of the Jewish church, but this child is the son of the Christian church. This argument destroys the unity of the church of God, which is under one, which is one under all changes of dispensation of His gracious covenant. Romans 11:16 to 24, and Ephesians 2, verse 20. The Messiah is here represented as in the beginning of the war with the same enemy, the seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. Still may the church of God joyfully declare, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Isaiah 9.6 This masculine son, however, is not to be understood of Christ personal, but of Christ mystical, of those who are with him called and chosen and faithful, whom he is not ashamed to call his brethren. Chapter 17, verse 14, and Hebrews 2.11 The sealed company, chapter 7, verse 4, the two witnesses, chapter 11, verse 3, the 144,000, 14, verse 1, are the man-child. As many rulers constitute but one angel, chapters 2 and 3, so the two witnesses are one manly son. The Lord Jesus was alone in the work of redemption, but he allows his faithful disciples to share in the honor of his victories. Chapter 2, 26 and 27, Psalm 149, verse 9. From the devouring jaws of the dragon, as it were, the child is caught up unto God and to his throne. The leaders in church and state supposed that they had made sure of the Savior when they had sealed the stone and set a watch. So thought the enemies of the witnesses while their dead bodies lay unburied. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. 
the anointed of the Father, the head of the church, and the prince of the kings of the earth, as the representative of his people, in defiance of the serpent, is caught up to the throne of God. Ephesians 2.6 While the church flies to her appointed place in the wilderness during the 1260 years. At the beginning of that gloomy period the woman fled. This flight is not mentioned by anticipation, as some suppose, for the wilderness condition of the woman and the sackcloth of the witnesses are emblematical of the same depressed state of the church and during the same time. The witnesses prophesied during the whole period of the 1260 years, and the woman is fed in the wilderness during the same time. Her flight sojourn into the wilderness and feeding there are allusions to the history of Elijah as before, chapter 11, verse 6, when he fled for his life from the wrath of Jezebel, 1 Kings 19, verses 1 to 4. Jezebel had already been introduced as an enemy to the church, chapter 2, verse 20. There may be allusion also to the miraculous subsistence of the church in the wilderness till the cup of the Amorites should be full. During the time of the conflict to be described in the rest of this chapter, the woman is in a place of safety. In the worst of times, there are places of safety provided for God's children. Isaiah 26, verse 20, verses 7 to 11. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God, in the power of his Christ, for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. In this part of the chapter, we have three attacks of the dragon upon the friends of true religion. The first is the war in heaven, verses 7 to 12. The second persecution on the earth, verses 12 to 16. The third is mentioned in verse 17, and these three contests cover the whole period of the 1260 years. The first war is waged in heaven. The allusion is obviously to the rebellion of angels, for which they were cast down from heaven, 2 Peter 2, verse 4. The contest is the same in principle as the first war, but it is conducted in a different form and place. Heaven here is the church, general, and the serpent acts upon the by the authority of the empire. The woman having fled into the wilderness, the dragon's power becomes so great in the symbolic heaven that he aims at the entire destruction of true religion in the world. The advocates of true religion at this time were the Waldenses, called by their adversaries in derision, Leonist and Cathari, citizens of Lyon and France and Puritans, a term of reproach heaped upon their successors till the present day. These people were deemed the most dangerous enemies to the Church of Rome, yet the reasons for their condemnation by the Inquisitors are their full vindication in the judgment of impartial men. They are three. This is the oldest sect, for some say it hath endured from the time of the Apostles. It is more general, for there is no country in which this sect is not, because when all other sects get horror in the hearers, this of the Leonist has a great show of piety. They live justly before men and believe all things rightly concerning God. 
only they blaspheme the church of Rome and the clergy, while the beast of its horns instigated by an apostate church and both by the dragon was making havoc of the church represented by the Puritans, there were some even in the Romish cloisters whose hearts God had touched and who occasionally espoused the cause of a virtuous minority at the hazard of life. This war in heaven, conducted with various success by Bernard, Peter Waldo, John Wycliffe, and others on the European continent and in Britain, may be pronounced by Gibbon, quote, premature and ineffectual, end quote, but the captain of salvation and his heroic followers will give a different verdict. These noble confessors and martyrs under the conduct of Michael, our prince, began the struggle with the dragon, although the war did not come to its height till the early part of the 16th century. Then it was that Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels. Both parties became more visible in the symbolic heaven before the eyes of all Christendom. Michael, who is like God, is the well-known description of Jesus Christ, Philippians 2.6, Hebrews 1.3. To Daniel, while contemplating the same contest, he was made known as the great prince that standeth for the children of God's people, and long before Daniel's time had contended with the devil. Jude 9. Christ and Belial are therefore the two opposing leaders of the armies. In other words, Christ mystical and the devil incarnate are the belligerents, and we know that greater is he that is in the saints than he that is in the world. 1 John 4, 4. The result of the war is not doubtful. The whole power of Rome, civil and ecclesiastical, emperors, kings, princes, pope, cardinals, and prelates, were baffled. And this too, whether in the use of the sword of the spirit, polemic, or of the material sword in literal warfare, when the Lord Jesus mustered the host to the battle, he furnished them with the whole armor of God to stand in the evil way. When Zingli, Luther, Calvin, Knox, their compeers and successors, were obliged to wrestle with the host of Antichrist against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places, wicked spirits in heavenly places, they found it both lawful and necessary having no sword to buy one, Luke 22:36, The dragon and his angels were defeated and routed. They prevailed not. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. The thunders of the Vatican thenceforth lost their wonted power to terrify. Ever since, they are but harmless thunder, unmeaning voice. Papal curses, though annually launched against all heretics, tend only to amuse the popular mind, not to reach or disturb the individual conscience. For centuries, the dragon has been unable to rouse any one horn of the beast to deeds of blood. This ends tape number six of Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele. Please go to the next tape in the series and continue listening. Thank you. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as SWRB's complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, 
T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. This book, Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele, is also available from Stillwater's Revival Books in softcover format at a discount in our A to Z author listings. And please, don't forget to look over the 62 CDs that make up our Reformation and Puritan Bookshelf CD sets if you visit our website at swrb.com, as these CDs are a great way to build a major reform library at a fraction of the cost of the printed books.